Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 10 and 11 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And we are going to be talking about some of the historical background to the translation process about Lucy and Martin Harris, a little bit about the culture, like what was going on in Palmyra prior to the publication of the Book of Mormon? What kind of stresses did Martin Harris have and Joseph? We've done some of this before. So it's going to be a little bit of a different angle on the history. But we're also going to jump into what this means and God's foreknowledge. What's the take-home lesson, or at least one of the major take-home lessons from the loss of the manuscript? So we'll jump into that. We'll also talk a little bit about Satan's plan, how he operates. The Lord takes some time in section 10 to talk about the plan and the plot and the strategy of the enemy so that we're prepared for it. But let's jump first to the history, because this is the lost manuscript. We're back to Martin Harris, Lucy Harris. We're now up to April. Some people have questioned, why didn't 10 come after 3? But until Oliver Cowdery shows up, I don't know that they're really ready to tackle where do we go now in the translation. So my own thinking is, now that Oliver is here, we need to know what do we do with the lost manuscript. And it's intriguing to understand what's going on, not just in Joseph's lives, but in Lucy and Martin Harris's life. So Mike, give us the background. Yeah. A lot of this information is going to come to us from Lucy Mack Smith. She wrote A History of Joseph and a fellow by the name of Joel Tiffany, Joel Tiffany wrote a series of articles that were published, and we cite all this stuff in the show notes, and you can go and link and read it all. But he's this reporter that in 1859 sits down with Martin and says, Martin, tell me the story. And he writes a lot of Martin's words, so he kind of lets Martin Harris tell you his story of, you know, this is his view on things and how they happened. So to go back in time to about 1827, When you get to 1827, Martin has built a comfortable life for himself in Palmyra. He's married his cousin, Lucy Harris. They get married in 1808. She's 15, and he's 25. And About four years later, after they have a child, he actually goes and fights in the War of 1812 and was a a faithful guy, and he actually moved up in rank. And by 1827, after the war, and he's come home and he's had his children, his last child's born in 1821, and he's kind of acquired quite a bit of land. He has about 320 acres of farmland, and he's, it's profitable. He's got a, a handsome home. And he has five children, that, three that live to adulthood. Um, and he's described by his neighbors and by some of the people that fought with him in the war as this industrious, hardworking farmer, shrewd in business calculations and frugal in his habits. He's just a prosperous man. And so he's living what I would say is the American dream. He's got lots of land. He's a farmer. He's successful. He's pursued happiness, and he's done it well. And so here he is, and he's sitting on on quite a bit of wealth, and he hears this news about this young man that had worked for him as a laborer named Joseph Smith, and he hears about these plates in a hill. And, you know, during these three years of interviews, Martin's heard about how Joseph's going to get them, and and he's waiting for them. Well, the day arrives when Lucy Mack Smith comes to Martin, and she says, my son has now obtained the plates, and I would like you to go visit Joseph. And so Martin agrees, and his first thought, this is some of his interviews that he does with Mr. Tiffany. He does some of these interviews where he says his first inclination is that maybe Joseph had found like a brass kettle or something, or maybe he had just um, you know, wasn't certain what he had. Well, when he goes to meet Joseph, he is shown a box. There's this wooden box that Joseph has, and in it are the plates. And Joseph says, you know, I can't show you the plates, but you're more than welcome to hold the box. Now, Lucy comes too. She, she's really, I can see this in Lucy's mind where she's like, is this just a money-making scheme? Are you guys just kind of doing this to get my husband to give you money? You know, what are your motives? And so she's really coming at the Smith family saying, show me these plates. And she's kind of playing like the devil's advocate, where she's like, 
I don't really believe it. And Martin's kind of leaning more towards, you know, I'm going to weigh this out and see how it goes. And I'm going to listen to heaven. I'm going to think about this and ponder it and weigh it out. Well, Lucy has a dream. And from, from the historical accounts that I've read, this dreams early on. In fact, one historian says that Lucy Harris, though she's antagonistic later and even at this time, one historian says that Lucy Harris is the first person in this dispensation to donate money for the publication of the Book of Mormon. And usually we talk about Martin, but according to this one historian, it's Lucy. So I'm going to just read this from Lucy Mac Smith's history about the dream that Lucy Harris has. So before we read this, I just want to reiterate that Lucy's a doubter and she's telling people, I don't, I, you know, I don't think this is legit. And one more thing before I share this, there is a, uh, a famous television show that has made fun of us and has portrayed Lucy Mac Smith as smart and they've portrayed her husband as dumb. And they actually have dumb to dumb dumb when Martin talks. And then when Lucy talks, they're like, smart, so smart, smart. And that they've kind of made a parody of this. And what I find fascinating is they never share the whole story. They just share the part that they use to denigrate faith. And so my point is, I, of course, I'm acknowledging that Lucy struggled, but she also had spiritual experiences. So this is her dream from her words as she shared with Lucy Max Smith. She says that she had a remarkable dream. When she awoke the next morning, she declared that a personage appeared to her in the night before and said to her that inasmuch as she had disputed the servant of the Lord, meaning Joseph, and said that his word was not to be believed and asked him many improper questions that she had done, that which was not right in the sight of God. So she gets chastised by this, this personage in her dream. And then she says, however, after the chastisement from the personage, she was shown the plates in her dream, and the, in the morning, she was able to describe the record in detail to her daughter and to the Smith family. After discussing the dream and pondering its meaning, Joseph handed her and her daughter the wooden box com- containing the plates. So Joseph's sitting there listening to this, and we don't have Joseph's writing here, but my, my thinking here is that Joseph hears this story, and he's like, okay, you have sufficient belief. You're not going to see the place, but here's the wooden box, and you can hold it, and you can see for yourself. The physicality of the item and the sheer weight of the plate served as the evidence that Lucy needed to begin believing that the plates were real. She held them, and, and we've done this when we were kids, and we rise, we pick up a present that we know it has our name on it. We can kind of shake it, and we kind of try and figure it out. Well, she's doing that. She, she can feel the plates moving around. Her husband says that they weigh about 60 pounds, and he's thinking they're made of gold or lead. Now, in his interviews with Mr. Tiffany, he says that Joseph Smith's family, they were so destitute that they couldn't even get credit to purchase lead that weighed that much. And so Martin's convinced. Martin's like, you guys have no access to this. If it's lead in that box, you wouldn't even be able to have this. So Martin starts to believe. But it's Lucy who literally takes $28 and she gives them to Joseph and she hands this money to Joseph and says, I want you to use this towards the publication, towards the translation of the plates. And so, like I said, according to one historian, this is the first recorded donor to the Book of Mormon translation. Now, to give you some kind of a, like an idea of like, what kind of donation is that in today's money? $28 back then is over $700 today. So it's not like it's nothing, right? And so uh, within days of her visit, Martin then visits. And he's surprised that Joseph has already planned to include him in the forthcoming effort to translate. Martin says, well, how do you know that I'm going to help you? And Joseph said, well, I looked in the seer stone. And as plainly as you're standing before me today in the seer stone, I looked at you, we had this conversation and you were going to help me with the translation. And Martin is in this position where he's like, he believes but he still kind of has these questions. Now, think about this in your life. Have you ever had experiences with the spirit or with evidences and you're like leaning one way, but you're not sure? And I can kind of see Martin in this condition. Really, a lot of what we're going to talk about in this podcast is Martin's struggle with this because a lot of that is kind of the context of section 10, but it's also Lucy's. So, But just to throw this in, Mike, it, it's common in the scriptures. Do you remember Nicodemus comes at night 
but confesses, Rabbi, thou art a great teacher sent from God. So why would he come at night? He's trying to hide from other people seeing that he's around Jesus, but he clearly has a testimony. So this is kind of the human condition. And what leads to the loss of the manuscript really are human people wrestling with a divine desire and a reality that, you know, hey, I don't want my husband to be deceived. So I I love this story because it typifies so many of us as we wrestle with, I have a testimony, but I'm surrounded by people who are criticizing me. And so we kind of go back and forth in that, just like Martin Harris is going to, just like Lucy's going to. So she donates the $28, and yet she's going to sue, she's going to file a complaint in court saying Joseph is defrauding her husband. So just wanted to point that out, that this is common, that Nicodemus kind of did the same thing. So many of us struggle with that same thing. She did struggle. And Bryce, I don't know if you've been to the the man who knew pageant. Have you been to that before? Years ago, we would take our young people in our ward to that in the summer for youth conference. And it's in this place called Cache County. If you've never been to Utah, there's this golden place where the cows are happy and the sun just hits the grass. And it's just, I've never seen a sad cow in Cache County and the cheese is a little bit sweeter. And up there, there's this little town called Clarkston. You're going to miss it if you blink. And that's where Martin Harris is buried. And they do this pageant. And the pageant is written by this fellow by the name of Rhett James. He's the author. And he's completely convinced that Lucy, although he says she gets a bad rap, he says basically, hey, she burns the manuscript. And here's Rhett James's take. Now, I don't agree with Rhett James, but I want to present this as a historical possibility. According to Rhett James and in his study on this, Lucy sees everybody in town kind of saying things about Martin. There are people saying, hey, this book's never going to make any money. It's going to cost $3,000 to print, and that's the burden of that's going to fall on Martin. He promises E.B. Grandin that he's going to put up a portion of his farm, which we talked about in the other podcast, but that historically does happen, and E.B. Grandin does get a hold of those acres, and he does get the, the money to pay for the publication of the text. And according to Rhett, J- Rhett James, his point is this. Lucy just wants it all to go away. She just wants everything to be back to. I'm married to my 45-year-old husband. We have this beautiful house. We have our happy cows. Everything's wonderful. And everybody in Palmyra thinks that we're respectable. But she's torn. She's kind of had these spiritual experiences. She's held the plates. Now, not physically touched them and seen them with her eyes, but she, she has enough information. And she's, she's this woman who I would say is torn. Now, I don't know what to do with this bit of information, Bryce, but I'm just going to tell the story. And I, I, I've been pondering in this in my mind going, okay, what does this tell me about Lucy? So I'm going to tell you the story, and then you can decide where you're going to draw the line on Lucy. So here's the story. Before Martin goes to New York, which we're going to talk about in a minute, right, when he meets Professor Anthon, we think Joseph does some rubbings off the plates. We really don't know, but there's multiple people that are helping Joseph to make a sheet of the characters. And so some historians say, McKay Hubbard says, hey, maybe they're doing rubbings of this. Joseph's certainly not skilled. He's not a scribe, but they make some of these. And according to the, this historian, Lucy hears about it because her husband has a copy of, of the characters. And she tells Flanders Dyke, this guy that's courting her daughter, she tells him, hey, if you get that from Martin, you can marry my daughter. So he does. He gets it and he gives it to her and she makes a copy. Now, here's where the story is really interesting. When Martin would be out, out and about town and people would be talking about the humbug Joseph Smith, Martin would say, oh yeah, look at this. And he would show them the characters And then the story goes, Lucy would pull one out, the exact copy, and she's like, oh, yeah, you think you have one? Well, he's given them to more than just you. And she would unfold hers, and Martin would look at it, and he's like, it's the same thing. Now, we don't know what's in her head, but can you see possibilities here? Like, part of me is looking at this like, she just wants to be in the insider group, but maybe she's doing it to kind of snub Martin, or maybe she's doing it to defend him. Maybe she's doing it to say, no, Martin, you're not crazy, right? You are respectable. I don't know how to interpret the story, but that's that's kind of the story that's happened in history. Now, I'm going to lean more towards, I can see Lucy feeling like left out because Martin's going to see the plates. 
And I can kind of see Lucy seeing how that's playing out. And I can see maybe she's a little bit frustrated with Joseph or maybe her station in life. I don't know. But that's where history is really interesting. The ultimate historian would have access to the minds of these characters. But nevertheless, that's kind of the story of what's happening in Palmyra um, later in her life. So after Martin comes back, and we'll talk about the trip to New York, and he comes back and he's ready, he's fully on board to mortgage his farm, and he helps um, Joseph in the translation. That July of, of 28, he loses the manuscript. And this is where Rhett James says that he thinks Lucy burns it. And they really do portray Lucy as really stressed about this and what it kind of what it's doing to the family name. All that being said, I'm going to take a different approach. I don't think that Lucy did anything to the manuscript. Now, there's a lot in the dirt roads. And so I'm just going to say this. Don Bradley has basically, as a historian, he's cataloged every single account of this event, of the lost manuscript. And he says there's 45 different accounts of people saying what Lucy did to it. And he says the further you get away in time from the event of the lost manuscript, the more and more likely it is and the more and more people are saying that Lucy burned it. But the closer you get to the event, people are saying, we don't know what happened to it. That goes against historical convention. Typically, the way it works is the closer you get to the event, whatever that story is, that's the legit story. And so he, he spends quite some time going through these documents, and he basically says, it comes down to this one guy where he says, maybe I think this is what happened. And then Pomeroy Tucker says, listen, she either burned it or she gave it to another guy. And then after Pomeroy Tucker, it's just kind of this assumed thing. Way, way, way later, all the way into the 1930s, people are just assuming that Lucy burned it. And so Don Bradley's contention is, listen, she didn't burn it. Now, she actually has it in her possession before it's lost. She has a bureau and it's locked. And while it's in her possession, it's never lost. And there's this one event where a fellow comes and he wants to see it and Martin wants to show it to him and he can't get her bureau open. And so he kind of takes a tool and he pries it open and he breaks her bureau and shows this fellow the manuscript and Lucy was pretty fired up about that. She's like, you broke my bureau. Well, if she wanted to take it, if she wanted to, to destroy it, she probably could have done it when she had it. Another thought about Lucy is she's a Quaker. Her religious convictions were like, I cannot tell a lie. And on her deathbed, she said, I'm not guilty of this. I did not take it. I did not destroy it. I had nothing to do with it. And when that's reported to Martin, because they separate in 1830, um, she dies young. She dies shortly thereafter the separation. But after she dies, and, and it's reported to Martin what she said on her deathbed, he never again blames Lucy. He says, you know what? I believe her because I know her character. But I just want to just reiterate again, Lucy's a complicated figure. I see her struggling with faith. I see her struggling with doubt. So I think these kinds of things matter. My mom has always believed, but she's had moments in her life where she's struggled in her faith. And she taught me about a lot of things about faith. And as I grew up and I've kind of matured a little bit, I've seen that we as human beings are nuanced. We're not all good guys and we're not all bad guys. And so I really want to just give Lucy her due and just say, I see her struggle. Now, what would have happened if she would have been like Martin and fully on board? Would we read differently about her? And I think the answer is, well, I, absolutely. But I don't think that she cannot be reclaimed. I just want to paint her in her as best I can as the first woman to really contribute and as a witness of the Book of Mormon. So that's a little bit about Lucy. Okay, Martin's journey, Martin's journey to New York. In February of 1828, he goes and he heads out and he first goes to Albany and he meets this guy by the name of Luther Bradish. And Luther says, listen, you've got to go to meet this other guy. I think he's going to be able to help you. What Martin wants to do is he has the characters written down, and he wants some kind of evidence that this is actually ancient. Now, some historians say that maybe even Martin's thinking about soliciting an expert translator, that maybe they're, they're in that kind of space. I don't agree with that assessment, but there are some historians that say this, well, after he meets Bradish, he meets this guy by the name of Dr. Samuel Mitchell. And after examining the characters, Dr. Samuel Mitchell says, you know who you need to talk to is this guy by the name of Charles Anthon at Columbia. Charles Anthon is familiar with Akkadian or Babylonian, as it's called a lot of times. And if you really want to have a headache, try to read it. 
you can't even write it really with a pen because that, that's that writing where they took those little pencils made out of, of wood, like a little wedge, and they made those little wedges in the clay. That's Akkadian. It was kind of like the Ligua Franca of the ancient world before Greek. So it was like, if you were educated in the ancient world, like 3000 BC, that's what you're speaking. And he has some familiarity with this and also Hebrew. He's also a teacher of like Latin and Greek. He knows French and German. So he's kind of like your language guy. So he meets him and Charles Anthony says, well, let me see this. And Martin shows it to him and he shows him the characters. And Anthony says, yeah, it's legit. He's like, this is, this is really old stuff. And he says, well, where did you get it? And that's where Martin says, well, an angel gave it to my friend. And Anthony, after, you know, signing this certificate of authenticity, says, can I see that certificate? And Martin says, yeah. And he hands it to him and, and Anthony rips it up. And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to uh, give you this. Um, why don't you bring me the account? Why, why don't you bring it to me to read? And Martin says, you know, it's sealed. And Anthony says, I cannot read a sealed book. And, and for Martin Harris, having read Isaiah 29 to him, a bell goes off. And he sees this as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and then he makes a beeline back to Palmyra and then to Joseph to go help translate. And so there's a few things that we learn from this trip that are significant. The first is that scholars had an interest in the characters, and they were willing to give them serious consideration as long as there's not an angel involved with the provenance, because we can't have angels. The second thing I think that is significant is that in the view of Martin and Joseph, the direct fulfillment of prophecy relative to the Book of Mormon has just happened. They've just seen this, and this is in the Book of Mormon, but it's also in Isaiah. And then third, it was a demonstration that translating the record would require the assistance of God. Intellect is not going to cut it. I think also it's an indication that just because somebody has the credentials, maybe he could have read it, but it's not going to come through Charles Anthon. And then finally, it built up Martin's own faith. He returned home confident that he had the evidence to convince his neighbors, and this is where he goes full force. There's some other things that are interesting here. One of the things is this. I don't know if Martin and Joseph knew the language that it was written in. Now, it's early, early you know, spring of 1828, and when Martin comes and they're translating, and they end right around Mosiah, we don't really read about this being Reformed Egyptian, except for at the end of the Book of Mormon and in 1 Nephi 1. Well, 1 Nephi 1 isn't translated till way after the manuscript's lost, at the very end in June of 1829. And Mormon and Moroni, those books are translated right at the end of May 1829. And so some historians have really pointed this out, that Joseph doesn't even know what this language is, not until later. And so him going to meet these guys, Charles Anthon and so forth, to many historians shows they didn't know even what this was. It was just this ancient document in America. It really shows that they're learning as they're going. And so to some of our detractors that say, Joseph Smith had this thing all written out in his head, and it was all kind of this meta-narrative, and then he just had to sit down and spit it out. Well, my response to that criticism is just read history. That's partly why we're doing this podcast, is as we start pulling on the threads of history, to me, it ratifies Joseph Smith's story. Joseph doesn't have all this stuff figured out because... He's a prophet that the Lord has chosen, but he's not this all-knowing individual. He's experiencing this. So I'm just trying to paint this picture to show you Joseph is a living person, Lucy is a living, breathing person, and Martin as well. And so that's kind of the backstory to section 10. Section 10 is the Lord telling Joseph, hey, this was my plan. And I think the Lord's also pulling the curtain back and says, let me tell you about the adversary. Let me tell you who he is, what his goals are. And I think Bryce is really going to flesh out some application, like how does Section 10 apply to a Latter-day Saint in 2021? So after Joseph and Martin lose the manuscript, and Oliver has now showed up, they're ready to translate, they, st- they jump back to where they left off, the Lord reveals what the plan was. Again, we don't know all the details of who took it, but the Lord reveals what their motive was. So in Section 10, verse 13... Satan has put it into their hearts to get thee to tempt the Lord thy God to ask to translate it over again. And then behold, they say and think in their hearts, we will see if God has given him power to translate. If so, he will also give him power again. 
And if God giveth him power again, or if he translate again, or in other words, if he brings forth the same words, behold, we have the same with us, meaning the manuscript still must have existed at some point, maybe even when the Book of Mormon was printed, that we have the words the same with us, and we have altered them. Therefore, they will not agree, and we will say that he has lied in his words, and he has no gift, and he has no power, therefore we will destroy him. In other words, the enemies took the manuscript and are praying that Joseph will retranslate the same material. They're going to alter the words that Joseph initially produced so that the retranslation doesn't match. And then they'll claim, well, he couldn't even retranslate the same things, the words are totally different, he's a fraud, the book is a fraud, and they think they have a brilliant plan. And the Lord just smiles and said, but don't worry, Joseph, I'm prepared for this. You're not going to retranslate the same material. So jumping forward in section 10, go to verse 38. Now verily I say unto you that an account of those things that you have written, which have gone out of your hands, is engraved upon the plates of Nephi, meaning the small plates of Nephi. Yea, and you remember it was said in those writings that a more particular account was given of these things upon the plates of Nephi. So Mormon, as he abridged the whole history, must have said in the abridgment, hey, the more particular account of this is in the small plates of Nephi. Mormon must have constantly referenced that there was another account. And now the Lord's saying, hey, do you remember Mormon saying those things? Well, verse 40, because the account which is engraven upon the plates of Nephi is more particular concerning the things which in my wisdom I would bring to the knowledge of the people in this account, therefore you shall translate the engravings which are on the plates of Nephi down to where you catch up to where you left off, and that's King Benjamin. In other words, you're going to end up with the account I wanted you to have. The account of Nephi's own words, first Nephi, second Nephi, Jacob, Enos, German, Omni, that's what the Lord want us to have. The Lord knew that Mormon's abridgment, the book of Lehi, is going to be lost. Now, I want to just let that distill upon you, because this is an insight into God like few others you'll find in the Scriptures. So knowing this, knowing that the Lord, his plan all along was that we end up with the small plates of Nephi, first Nephi through Omni, and that Mormon's abridgment of that same time period would be lost, watch what he does. Let me walk you through the Book of Mormon, and let me just point out the brilliance of Heavenly Father, the brilliance of the Savior in preparing for this. So go to first Nephi chapter 9. Notice he talks about these plates and those plates, all throughout chapter 9, these plates and those plates. Bryce, I, yeah, I got to say this. This is so confusing. This is so confusing. Are you going to make it make sense? I'm going to make it make sense, okay? So Nephi says in verse 1, and all these things did my father see and hear and speak as he dwelled in a tent in the valley of Lemuel, and also many more things which cannot be written upon these plates, meaning the small plates that we're reading. And now as I have spoken concerning these plates, behold, they are not the plates upon which I make a full account of the history of my people. So Nephi's writing two sets of plates, and these plates are the smaller ones. They're not the other ones, the full history. Verse 3, I have received a commandment of the Lord that I should make these plates for the special purpose that there should be an account engraven upon the ministry of my people. But upon the other plates, verse 4, should be engraved an account of the reign of the king. So Nephi's other plates have the full account, and these plates have more of a spiritual account. He says, wherefore, these plates are for the more part of the ministry, and the other plates are for the more part of the reign of the kings and the wars and the kinship. So why, Nephi, are you making two sets of plates? That doesn't make sense to anyone. Why would Nephi make two separate sets of plates? Now verse 5, wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. So at some point, now we suspect, well, maybe we turn there, go to 2 Nephi chapter 5, Verse 28 says, 30 years have passed since they left Jerusalem. And then verse 34 says, 40 years had passed. 
So somewhere between 30 and 40 years after they leave Jerusalem, the Lord says in verse 30, make other plates. Make other plates. And then I love Nephi, verse 31, wherefore I, Nephi, to be obedient to the commandments of the Lord, went and made these plates. So he's already keeping another set of plates. And somewhere along the line, the Lord says, make another set and make it more spiritual. Put the ministry, put the good stuff on it, Nephi. And the Lord makes a second set of plates, and he does not understand why. Now, go to Omni and turn to the last verse. And I, Amalekai, had a brother, and he went with them. And I have since known concerning them. I have not since known concerning them. And I am about to lie down in my grave, and notice what he says. These plates are full. And I make an end of my speaking. So he's done with the set of plates that was not supposed to be continued. So Nephi starts a small set of plates. Nephi writes a whole lot on them. And when we get to Omni, they're full. And they must have just remained on a shelf for many, many years. Now, the very next chapter is actually hundreds of years later. And it's actually Mormon saying, let me tell you what I've just done. So these are words of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 3. And now I speak somewhat concerning that which I have written. For after I had made an abridgment from the plates of Nephi down to the reign of this king of whom Amalekai spake... Meaning, so do you hear what he just said? Mormon abridged the large plates from Lehi down to Benjamin. And I'm going to say that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. Hundreds of years. So Mormon abridges from Lehi down to Benjamin. Then he says, I searched among the records which had been delivered into my hands, and I found these plates, meaning that small set of plates that Nephi made in addition to the large ones which contained this small account of the prophets from Jacob down to the reign of this King Benjamin, and also many of the words of Nephi. And the things which are upon these plates pleasing me because of the prophecies, he says in verse 5, I chose these things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi. So, summarizing, Mormon abridges Lehi to Benjamin. Now, that's the portion that Joseph will translate first, and that's the lost manuscript. And then Mormon says, I threw in the small place. Now, can you imagine how confusing that must have been to Mormon? I'm duplicating what I just did. So the first portion is Mormon's words of Lehi down to Benjamin, and now I'm going to throw in the small place, which has Nephi's version and Jacob and Enos all the way down to Omni. It must have been a little confusing why he duplicated that, two copies of the same time period, one in Mormon's words, one in the author's words. Now look at verse 7. And I do this for a wise purpose, for thus it whispereth me, according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things. But the Lord knoweth all things which are to come, wherefore he worketh in me to do according to his will. So Nephi was told to make another set of plates. He didn't understand why, but he did it. Mormon was impressed to include them on the gold plates. He didn't understand why, but he did it. Now, what do you suppose Mormon and Nephi did when Martin Harris lost the manuscript? They both must have gone... Oh, that's why. So let me, let me make sure you understand this. Nephi, who lives some 600 years before Christ, was told to make a second set of plates because in 1828, Martin Harris was going to lose that manuscript. That's 2,400 years 2,400 years before Martin loses the manuscript, Nephi is told to make a second set of plates. And then in 380-some-odd A.D., Mormon was told to include it on the gold plates. That's 1,500 years. 
1,500 years in advance, the Lord is preparing for the lost manuscript so that Satan's plan that Joseph's going to retranslate the same material will not work. Now, tell me about Heavenly Father. Tell me about the God that we worship. The same God who 2,400 years in advance knows he needs a second set of the same time period can guide and direct your life. He can put you where you need to be. He can give you the experiences he knows you need to have. He can call you on a mission to the place you need to serve. He can cross your path with your spouse's path. He can get you where you need to be. We ought to trust him. We ought to trust his foreknowledge. We ought to trust that he knows what's best and that he has us where we need to be and that this church is where it needs to be and I am where I need to be. The same God who 2,400 years in advance as Nephi make another set of plates can guide your life to the celestial kingdom. And so the Lord summarizes that, going back to section 10, verse 42, I will confound those who have altered my words. I will not suffer that they shall destroy my work. And I will show unto them that the wisdom of God is greater than the cunning of the devil. I've got mine highlighted there in bold, because I think that's the point. Yep, I will show unto them God's wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. He has us where we need to be. And I love verse 45. I, I can't imagine what was lost. I love Mormon. I love Mormon's words. I, will, I long for the day when we get the lost manuscript back. It's retranslated, and we get to read it. But I am very grateful we have First Nephi, Second Nephi, Jacob, some of my dear, the dearest parts of the Book of Mormon are in the small plates, and I love that in the middle of verse 45, the Lord seems to you know, suggest that's also true. So back in verse 40, it says that they are more particular concerning the things. But then in verse 45, the Lord says that the plates of Nephi do throw greater views upon my gospel. And I love... I love what's written in the small plates. They do indeed throw greater views upon his gospel. So that's kind of the take-home message. But section 10 also now goes into, let's talk about Lucifer. Let's talk about the enemy. It's like the, you can see the duality. I have Satan, Satan, Satan highlighted, and wisdom, 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 wisdom. There's the wisdom of God and the trappings of Satan. And, and they're like... Compared and contrast here, aren't they, Bryce? Yeah. So going back, after he reveals the plan of the enemy, starting in verse 19, their plan is to say, we will do this that we may not be ashamed in the end, that we may get glory of the world. And then verse 20, verily, verily, I say unto you, Satan has great hold upon their hearts and stirreth them up to iniquity against that which is good. Now, Joseph Smith, remember in Joseph Smith history, when he first tells the story of the first vision to the minister, he says he was greatly surprised. Latter-day Saints should not be surprised any longer. We need to understand that Satan stirreth up those upon whom he can gain their hearts to destroy that which is good. Verse 22, Satan stirreth them up that he may lead their souls to destruction, and he has laid a cunning plan, thinking to destroy the works of God. Verse 24, he stirreth up their hearts to anger against this work. Now, that's probably the second message of section 10 that we need to highlight, is that no one should be surprised that Satan is trying to destroy this work. Sometimes it, it catches converts by surprise when all of a sudden they discover how much opposition they face. Satan is stirring up the hearts of anyone who will listen to him to anger against this word. It shouldn't surprise us. Now, verse 25 is kind of their tactic. He said unto them, deceive and lie in wait to catch. 
that you may destroy. That's a tactic. They just wait for something. They lie in wait to catch so that they can destroy. And so we ought to be prepared. We need to know that Satan's coming after us. Verse 26, he flattereth them and leadeth them along until he draggeth their souls down to hell. And thus he causeth them to catch themselves in their own snare. He's not building a kingdom. Satan is not building loyal followers. There is no allegiance on his team. There is no supporting each other. He will not support them at the last day. His only goal is not only to destroy us, but destroy the people he used to destroy righteousness. He is not a team builder. Why you would ever play on his team is beyond me. But he tells you, hey, I'm your friend. But somehow he makes you think that playing on his team is going to bring great reward. It won't. Verse 28, woe be unto him that lieth to deceive, because he supposeth that another lieth to deceive, for such are not exempt from the justice of God. So just tough lesson. It's hard. As I've worked with the youth of the church, it's hard to say to them, I'm sorry, but you're going to be hated because of your religious opinion, your religious beliefs. But that's the reality. The same people who crucified Christ, the same spirit of that is alive today and are trying to destroy the Lord's desires to restore truth on this earth. So first they tried to take out the Book of Mormon. Next, they're coming after the people who believe in the Book of Mormon. So section 10 is a warning that they're coming, but also that comforting message that God's wisdom is greater than their cunning, and that God will always have us prepared. And no one should be scared when we talk about these things. Again, I'm going to read you a verse of section 29, and we're going to come back to this so many times in the scriptures. Section 29 is a second coming scripture that often terrifies people. But if you're terrified, you've missed the point. Section 29, verse 8, if you gather to Zion, you will be prepared in all things against the day when tribulation and desolation are sent forth upon the wicked. You will be prepared in all things. The wisdom of God is greater than the cunning of the devil. He will have his followers prepared for whatever the cunning of the devil is going to bring. So let that be the message. The lost manuscript needs to teach us a great lesson that God is prepared that his wisdom is greater, and that Satan is going to try and destroy us. But if we stick with, if we play on God's team, he is a team builder, and he died for his followers, and he leads them with love in his heart, and he will support them at the end. Why you would ever play on Satan's team, I don't know. I know that, you're, that, that he's going to try and deceive some, but you need to recognize that he is not your friend. And he is not going to bless you in the end. He is leading you to destruction. So great messages that come out of section 10. I just want to say a little bit about wisdom. So look in verse 34, verse 35, and verse 40. This idea that the greater views, the more particular parts of wisdom are going to be brought to knowledge. And then I think the Lord's using a little bit of the language of John. If you go to the end of section 10, right? Verse 57, I came to mine own, and my own received me not. I am the light which shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. The Lord is essentially saying he's a light in a dark place, and I think he's inviting us to look to the light, and that to me is where this wisdom is. And the wisdom is kind of this opposite of the stirring up the heart and the resting of the scriptures. That's in verse 63. But this idea of this great mystery, this wisdom, what's the mystery? He says, I'm going to unfold it to you right here. Here it is, verse 65. He says, I will gather them as a hand gathereth her chickens under her wings. That's a temple phrase. That's the Lord is essentially saying there's wings in the Holy of Holies. He's saying, I want to bring you into my presence and embrace you. And verse 66, partake of the waters of life freely. 
every year in the ancient temple, they would have this water ceremony where they would pour the waters that come from under the ground and they would pour the waters on the ground. And the prayer was that God would send forth rain and the waters and they would do it on the rock. So we have that in verse 69, endure to the end and I'm going to establish him on my rock. So there's all this temple imagery. And the big picture I want you to get in your mind is God says, here's the mystery. If you don't let adversaries stir up your heart, you're going to come into my presence. And then he says, and he throws this out here, Bryce, and I'm going to kind of pay homage to our, our friends of other Christian faiths. Look what he says about the Book of Mormon. We shouldn't be afraid of it. If you're a good Catholic, don't be afraid of it. Look what he says. Verse 54, I'm establishing this not to destroy my church, but to build up my church. It's in 52. It's again in 54. He's repeating that idea. The Book of Mormon was never intended to destroy, but rather to add to, to build up. He says it in the middle of 62. I'm restoring this, and they shall not deny that which they have received, but they shall build it up. Yeah. It's that whole idea of bring whatever you have, yes. bring whatever truth you have, and we will add to it. We will not destroy it. Now, one more verse in here. Look at the end. Look in section 10, verse 67. Look at the end of that verse. Whoever repents and comes unto me, the same is my church. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is going to be re restored April 6, 1830. This is a year in advance. So I'm just going to throw this out as a possibility. What if the Lord is saying here, we're not here to destroy what you have, all the truth, bring it, but we're going to add to it? What if the Lord has his arms open and he's saying to the world, you guys are my church. You're my guys as long as you're on the path of repentance. In other words, there are people that are going to walk this earth and never hear the restored gospel. But I kind of see echoes in here, Bryce, of the Lord saying, you're still my guys. You're still my ecclesia, my group, my church. Sometimes when we, we draw lines in the sand and we draw these distinctions and we say, well, you're not my church and I'm in my church. And the Lord's taking that convention and saying, no, my church is whoever's going to repent. We see it as a denominational thing. Now, there really is an earthly organization that houses the keys and the authority but remember what he says in 1 Nephi 14, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb, and the other is the church of the devil. You might be a member of a certain denomination and not necessarily be in the church of the Lamb. You might be a Latter-day Saint and not be in the church of the Lamb. Or you might be of another denomination and be in the church of the Lamb. There are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb, and the other is the church of the devil. Maybe I'm overstepping my, my merciful view of the Savior, but I really do see the Savior scene, and we'll see this in the 123rd section where the Lord says there's so many people, and they're steeped in tradition, and they're just not going to get it, but we've got to get the message out there. I see the Lord looking at these people saying, keep going, and, and I see kind of this merciful view of, of humanity. Anyway, that, that's a little bit what I take out of section 10. Section 11 is... Hiram. It's May 1829, and according to the records, this is after the restoration of the Aaronic Priesthood, which we'll talk about when we get to section 13, but this is Hiram, and he's kind of asking, hey, what am I supposed to do? The first few verses are going to be repeated in like section 12 and section 14, and it's kind of, if you're in the same circumstance, the Lord could give kind of the same counsel. So section 11 is instruction to Hiram, but also others, at least the first nine verses. But then it gets into some specific stuff for Hiram, because Hiram's he's ready to go, isn't he? He is. He's antsy, as many of us are. Lord, I'm antsy. Put me on the front row. Put me in the trenches. I want to do work. And sometimes the Lord says, okay, love the attitude, but there's a principle you need to know. And so he jumps into that. He, he says, I know you're antsy, but look at verse 21. I think the if I were to pinpoint the main verse of section 11, it's got to be verse 21, where he says to a very antsy Hiram, seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then, notice that is a significant word, then 
shall your tongue be loosed. Then, if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. We have a whole lot of, we see a lot of young people antsy to go on a mission and serve God. But that lesson needs to come to all of us, that before, you need to be antsy to obtain the word first. Obtain his word, and then shall your tongue be loosed. And so there's this drive to, yes, we all want to serve the Lord. We all want to bless the kingdom. We all want to do what we can, but there needs to be a hunger in our souls to treasure up the words of God. Now, he's going to say that in verse 26, treasure up in your heart until the time which is in my wisdom that you should go forth. And notice what he's telling them to read, verse 22. Yeah, he's telling them to read the Bible and the Book of Mormon. We should know our Bible, shouldn't we? We should. Treasure it up. And so here we sit in a pandemic, and all of us are antsy to get back to the temple, and missionaries are antsy to get back knocking on doors and going in homes, and we're antsy to come back to church, and we're antsy to have Sunday school and priesthood. And I can just hear the Lord saying, I love the attitude, but take advantage of the time to obtain my word. Because right now we can't go out and declare like we'd like to, but we certainly have access to the Word that we can be obtaining. There needs to be a hunger to understand the Word of God. There needs to be a treasuring up in our hearts, and then we will have power to teach it. There's some really interesting instruction given to Hiram at the end. Bryce, you just read verse 21. And then in verse 22, the Lord tells him to read the Bible. And then he says, in the middle of the verse, he says, study my word, which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating, meaning the Book of Mormon. Yea, until you've obtained all which I shall grant unto the children of men in this generation, and then shall all things be added. Behold, thou art Hiram, my son, seek the wisdom of God, and all things shall be added according to that which is just." Build upon my rock, which is my gospel, deny not the spirit of revelation, nor the spirit of prophecy, and woe unto him that denieth these things. Therefore treasure up in your heart until the time which is my wisdom that you shall go forth. And so, in essence, the Lord is telling him, Hiram, get my word. Get truth wherever you find it. Get truth. Seek wisdom. And don't don't be limited on where you think you're going to find it, and don't deny it when it comes. If it comes from a source you weren't prepared to receive it from, don't deny the spirit of revelation. In other words, he's pleading with Hiram and to all of us to learn to discern truth from error, regardless of the source it comes from. Deny not the spirit of revelation. When the spirit speaks, receive it, whatever form it comes in. It comes in the Bible. It comes in the Book of Mormon. So those who are rejecting the Book of Mormon need to have that same idea. I'm going to receive the spirit of truth in whatever form it comes. And if truth is in this book, I'm going to receive it. And I'm not going to reject it. And there's a flip side to that, right? Error comes in many forms. And we need to learn to distinguish between truth and error, regardless of the source from which it comes. And I think that's the idea here, Mike. Yeah. So many of these sections are hitting this point of like, how do we know what voice am I supposed to listen to? And the Quorum of the Twelve have talked about this extensively. And I think this is a big lesson for not only Hiram, but I think Joseph has learned it. And I think Martin's learning it. And so this is Joseph Feely McConkie talking about this, but I just cannot say enough how much this means to me. Speaking on these verses, he says, the special gift given Hiram would center in his ability to declare with power the message of the restoration. That's his gift. He's going to speak with power. And then he says, given that we cannot teach that which we do not know, it was required that he prepare himself that he might be a suitable companion of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures were to constitute the foundation of his understanding. Hiram was to become a student of the Bible and the Book of Mormon. Building upon the foundation of these books, he would enjoy the spirit of revelation 
and much more would be added to his understanding that reached beyond the written words on those pages. And so I just want to reiterate that thought that when we immerse ourselves in the scriptures and when we think about them and we ponder them, I think we get more depending on our ability to have a place to put it. And like Bryce said, being open. Am I open to this no matter what source it comes from? And so Joseph Philly McConkie quotes his dad, Bruce McConkie. As I was pondering this, I thought, I've had this experience, and so I just want to share this. Bruce McConkie said, those who preach by the power of the Holy Ghost use the scriptures as their basic source of knowledge and doctrine. They begin with what the Lord has before revealed to other inspired men, but it is the practice of the Lord to give added knowledge to those whose hearts the true meanings and intents of the scriptures have been impressed. Many great doctrinal revelations come to those who preach from the scriptures. When they're in tune with the infinite, the Lord lets them know first the full and complete meaning of the scriptures they are expounding, and then he oftentimes expands their views so that new truth will flood in upon them. And they learn added things that those who do not follow such a course can never know. Hence, as to preaching the word, the Lord commands his servants to go forth, say none other things than that which the prophets and apostles have written, and that which is taught them by the comforter through the prayer of faith. In a living, growing, divine church, new truths will come forth from time to time, and old truths will be applied with new vigor to new situations, all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit of God. And so to me, that really resonated. I can't tell you how many times... I'll be talking to Bryce about something and I'm like, I just read this and I made this connection. And then Bryce is like, well, have you thought about this? And then I'm like, no, but I see how it fits. And then I go back and I'm like, I study some more. And then I'm like, oh, I found this connection in this text and this kind of fits in here. And so I'm just trying to testify this principle or idea to be open and to go down paths where there's light. And I want to illustrate that, and this is the opposite principle. I'll have a friend or an associate or a family member that will send me a text or an email that goes something like this. Hey, Mike, I was reading this, such and such, or my brother has decided he's going to leave the church because he read this document. Now, I'm not going to go down the roads of what they're reading, but it's something which is contrary to faith, something which tears down faith. And then inevitably the question, hey, should I, should I read this thing that tears down faith? And I would say everything in these verses at the end of section 11 that talks about how to get wisdom and how to get the spirit can be reversed. In other words, the principle works both ways. If I seek darkness, if I desire to read and study arguments that tear down faith, then I could lose the light that I now have. Arguments cut both ways. So on one hand, I'm not advocating for ignorance, and I do believe that truth will prevail and that truth can stand and it can stand right up to the scrutiny of questioning, and it can handle intense examination. But if we want to allow light and truth to come into our lives, we must align ourselves with the principles that govern truth. If we're going to spend time examining the arguments against faith, we need to at least be honest with ourselves and acknowledge what we're doing and spend at least that amount of time studying light and truth and asking the Holy Ghost to partner with us in our quest for wisdom. And so an analogy might suffice. I have a brother who's worked in remodeling and he'll do bathrooms or kitchens and, and he does some great work. He can go in with him and his buddies and sledgehammers and they can take out all your walls in your bathroom, all the sinks, the toilets, and they can get it all ripped out and put in a dumpster in front of your house about within a day. And then I asked him, how long does it take to build a new bathroom? And he's like, Mike, that, that could take weeks. It's a long process and it's expensive. And I would say to be built up or to build a testimony is kind of like that. It's easy to des destroy faith. It's easy to des destroy faith in a relationship. A married couple that's been married 20 years, you can destroy faith really quick. But things that really matter, things like faith and testimony, those things take time to build. And so my invitation to all of us, and I'm talking to myself too, is to take that counsel at the end of section 11, seek wisdom, and I love verse 25, deny not the spirit of revelation. 
Let me illustrate that in the Book of Mormon. In Helaman, we saw that the Nephites are growing wicked and the Lamanites are growing righteous. Now, there's a foil here. I'm going to read from Helaman 6, 34 through 38. Now, watch this happen simultaneously. I'm going to read the verses, and then we'll see if we can pick apart the two sides. And thus we see that the Nephites did begin to dwindle in unbelief and grow in wickedness and abominations while the Lamanites did grow exceedingly in the knowledge of their Lord. Yea, they did begin to keep his statutes and commandments, and to walk in truth and uprightness before him. And thus we see that the Spirit of the Lord began to withdraw from the Nephites because of the wickedness of the hardness of the hearts. And thus we see that the Lord did begin to pour out his Spirit upon the Lamanites because of their easiness and willingness to believe in his words. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt down the band of robbers of Gadianton, and they did preach the word of God among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. And it came to pass that on the other hand, the Lamanites did build them up and support them, beginning at the more wicked part of them, until they had overspread over the land of the Nephites and had seduced the more part of the righteous until they had come down to believe in their works and partake of their spoils and join with them. So you got two processes going on. First of all, the Lamanites start by being easy and willing to seek light. They seek light. They are easy and willing to believe. Now, what happens when you're willing to believe is you grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And then he pours out his spirit upon you to the point where they're now preaching to the Gadianton robbers. But the Nephites are looking to doubt. They're quick to doubt. They're looking for things that give them a reason to doubt. And as soon as you do that, you grow in wickedness, and the spirit withdraws from you. And then instead of fighting the Gadianton robbers, they're joining them. They begin to dwindle in unbelief. So as you seek truth, recognize that sometimes some sources promote doubt and fear, and some sources promote light and belief and faith. So I think that's the plea the Lord is giving to Hiram. Seek truth. Seek righteousness. Follow light. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.